Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I am your host, Reese Riley, and my guest today is the Chief Executive of Momentum Waikato. I'd like to welcome Calvin Eglinton. Morning. How are you, Reese? Good, good. How are you doing? Good, mate. Yeah, good. Yeah, yep. So first off, um, I just want to find out exactly what Momentum Waikato does, because I've tried to explain this to my friends and they kind of look at me blankly. So it's probably <laughs> best that you explain exactly what it is. Cool. Look, so, so Momentum Waikato is what's known as a community foundation, uh, and it's based on um, uh, a movement that has been around in the US and in Europe for years. And it basically it's philanthropy, right? It's the, the act of giving and being generous with, with your wealth. Yeah. Um, and... When you travel around overseas, whether you're in Europe or particularly in the States, they have uh, a culture of, of giving and you'll notice that there'll be universities and hospitals and civic buildings named after families or businesses who have been around for years. So, um, And that's because they don't have or haven't had a uh, structure such as New Zealand after the Holyoke years of a social welfare network and a, and a government, you know, ACC and all those other things that New Zealand enjoy. So the idea of philanthropy and giving has been a big part of what's developed communities over centuries in Europe and in the States more recently in modern times. So the concept here in New Zealand, and I think we can all sit back and look at service provision from local and central government, and say, well, hang on, there's a growing gap between those who have and those who haven't and the needs perhaps in health or mental health, particularly at the moment. And the idea of a community foundation is working with uh, families and trusts and even uh, people like you and I who want to give to build an endowment fund right. for the Waikato region so that the, the region has its own fund to support services and projects into the future. So that the the um, we've been going for about four years. We've currently got around fifteen million dollars in the endowment fund, which mm-hmm. has been established. So that's been through gifts and bequest. And largely um, the bequest or what we now call gifts and wills has been a large part of growing these f- funds throughout the world. Mm-hmm. So people um, who have got an affinity or a real passion for an organization or for a community have left in their wills parts of their estate to those things. So, for example, you look at, uh, I think it's the Harvard Endowment Fund, there's something like $45 billion in that fund left um, by, in in large part, by people who have been an alumni, student, ex-student of that um, university who have then left parts of their um, estate to the university on their death. So that's one part of it. And we know, um, you know, if you can develop that long-term strategy, and the closest example we've got here is the Acorn Foundation in Western Bay of Plenty. Now, they've been running for about 15 years. They're now at a point where they've got $30 million in their account, but they've got 300 bequests lined up for people to leave parts of their estate to go to the Western Bay of Plenty to be able to support services into the future. Right. So it's a real long game, right? Mm-hmm. Um and we do that through obviously talking to people about leaving bequests and to Momentum Waikato to enable uh, projects. And some people are doing it um, uh, already as a living gift, so that like I donate $50 a week to an education fund. Uh, our staff do that. All of our board members um, have left bequests or, or, or do through payroll giving through their staff. And there's all sorts of ways you can build a fund over time. Um, 
but that that ability to take a longer term game and establish an endowment fund for the region. So we also do it through trust transfers. So we know in New Zealand, and this is my little fact. So New Zealand's the second most generous country in the world. And really? Yep, yeah, absolutely. So I did not know that. That's right, which is really interesting. And and a lot of that is not um, you know people with a lot of wealth giving big donations like you know, like um, the Bill Gateses of the world. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually New Zealanders, people like you and me, giving um, small amounts on a regular basis. And actually per head of capita, we're the most, uh, second most generous nation in the world. America is actually the most generous nation in the world. But that's because of that bequest and philanthropy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you can build this concept over time, and that's what we're about. And so therefore, the proceeds of any endowment fund go back into the community so that in the future, the Waikato region will be able to, um, alongside our other big funding partners like government and local government and Trust Waikato and the Well Engine Networks, they'll actually be able to, um, we'll be able to support those services from our own fund on the ground rather than have the gap. Um, right. So yeah, it's, it's quite a, it's a bit of a complex concept, but when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, well, because when I try to explain it to people, yeah. I'm like, how do I put this into two sentences? Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's not a two sentence, <laughs> no, it's no. not a two sentence so, answer, but it's, but it really, if you think about it, it's building an endowment fund for the gift of giving, and then the fund uh, is invested, and the proceeds from that fund go back to the community. So do you reach out to people in particular, or do they just all come to you? Oh, no, uh, both really. Um, yeah. So we, we've got some great examples of philanthropy in, um, uh, in Hamilton already. So one is a very specific fund. So this is actually uh, by a lady who wishes to remain anonymous, but she's established a fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's around um, $250,000. We've grown that fund now through our investments to around $300,000. And the proceeds from that fund go specifically to... Um, Polynesian women who are studying at Wellesley College. So each oh, okay. year, the proceeds of the fund, not the whole 300, but the amount that we grow it by each year, yeah. goes to Wellesley College where scholarships for Polynesian girls to, to get a scholarship to attend that school. Oh, so wow. that's really specific, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then here in Hamilton, um, you, m- many people know about the Taitua Arboretum out here in New yeah, South. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Um, it's great. Gift to the city by um, uh, John, John and Bunny Mortimer. Now, uh, John unfortunately passed away last year, but the Mortimers have set up a gift program where the fund that they've associated with Momentum is growing each year through investment, and the proceeds from that fund go back to the Arboretum for to do project development of whatever they wish it to do. So at that stage, there's that level. And then, of course, you've got the really philanthropic families that already exist here in Hamilton, like or in the Waikato, like the Gallagher's and the Perry's. And, and so the idea is um, some people come to us and are saying, look, we're really into surf life-saving, or we're really into we want to support this community, or we'd really like to support um, environmental concerns or this group, mm. and we want to leave a bequest. And then... We've also had people sign up to us and we're going out individually. We've got a database of around some 2,000 people yep. that have shown an interest to us over time and we are slowly working through meeting with them one-on-one with the team and talking to them about the concept. Now, um, it's a little bit like sales, but the reality is if people are really passionate about a cause and they want that cause to be supported forever, then they can establish a fund. So how many funds are there? Oh, look, we, we currently have about um, 12 funds over the last four years. Okay. But again, um, uh, when you look at Acorn, they've been running for 19 years. Yeah. They've got some 300 funds potentially lined up to come in over the next 30 years. Wow. So, and, and the thing is, is that 
um, in momentum, once you set that, um, uh, that fund up, it, it leverages all the others. And we only pay one fee off one set of funds rather than paying individually. So oh. in the old days, in the old days, <laughs> previously, um, people, families would set up their own trusts. Yeah. Right? So that's kind of been the New Zealand way of doing it. They set up their own trust to support their families. And, and absolutely, you still need to look after your family first. But if you left a percentage of your estate and establish a fund with a momentum, there's no fees. You don't have to worry about the accountability and the management because we do all that for you. Yeah. Um, and all you need to do is make a decision about where you put the proceeds. So it's it's quite a cool model for the community to be able to support something in longevity. So uh, a lot of people have given gifts in their wills before, yeah, like the RSPCA, for example. They, yeah. get, they actually get quite a lot of bequest things, but it's spent straight away. You know, the money comes in and the organisation spends it on something. Bro. But in this case, you can establish a fund yeah. and the proceeds go back to the that cause forever because the fund keeps growing it's invested the proceeds keep growing and so then it goes to that organization where, where do you decide where you invest it though yeah so we yeah, good question right so because trust is pretty important in this yeah. stuff because you're dealing with people's cash so yeah um we use two independent uh, um advisories so the so we use craig's investment partners so professional firms yeah. and forsyth bar currently um and our board is independently appointed so uh, the board is appointed by another group of independent uh, people who are established by our deed. Mm-hmm. So they're not um, uh, specific people, they're specific roles in the community. So for example, the mayors, uh, mayors get to nominate someone. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the head of the Institute of Directors gets to nominate someone. The head of Well Energy and Trust Networks gets to nominate someone on that appointments panel. So that gives us a sense of independence. Then that group comes together to appoint who should be on our board, depending on what our strategy is at the time. That sounds like a long process. It is, but what it does is it means that no one on your board can capture the board or can make decisions around um, the funds for people, and it right. gives it that independence, right? Okay. So you have to you have to have some complexity in there to get that independence in yeah. the process, yeah. So because people need to trust that we're going to manage if, their funds. If right. all the councils amalgamated, though, yep, would that make it easier or harder? Uh, it would make it easier because you don't have one mayor yeah. um, for a start. Um, but no, it would make it easier. In many ways, it would make it easier. Um, but there, would there be more risk involved with one person no, controlling no, everything? No, because it wouldn't be one person. I mean, it would only The mayor would only get to nominate yeah, yeah. one person yeah, yeah. and then you'd have someone from the IOD and you've got someone from World Networks and then, you've, and then those people have to identify three others through a, a nomination process themselves. Uh, so there's always a sense of independence coming in. Okay. So no one agency can uh, take full control over anything that happens within the organisation. So it's quite, it is quite complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it has to be to get that independence and that trust. Ah. Yeah. But we, um, so so bequest is one part of it and donations obviously and you know, payroll giving. We, we've just set that up with Longveld. Yep. So Longveld have established a Longveld fund where their staff pay into a, a portion of their salaries like $10 a pay or $5 a pay. Yeah. Um, and the great thing about payroll giving is that if you put in, say, $30 because of the tax rebates you get, you actually only pay 20 and you get a rebate directly that happens through the payroll system. Oh. So even though you've contributed 30 you get a tax rebate because it's a donation. Did you know this before? No. Becoming chief no executive? One, not many people know this, right? <laughs> so... 
That, that, that's the beauty of, of giving. Anything yeah, yeah. over $10, you get a tax, tax rate um, rebate on. So for corporates and businesses and individuals, it's quite a good deal if you want to support something. You do yeah. it through a donation and through payroll giving. If you do it straight away, you get that rebate directly happening into your as a credit. So you don't have to go through a tax form and do all the rest of it. It just happens through the payroll system. That's good. That would save a lot of time. Yeah, man, that's right. So it... it so people like you and I, you know, we're not super wealthy or anything, but we can, or maybe you are, I don't know. Oh, no, 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 I definitely am not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got a pretty cool studio yeah. here, mate. So, um, but it's that whole thing about, uh, you know, small amounts by many people to a certain cause makes the biggest difference. Yeah. We know that, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And sure, we, you know, we see the Blinder Gates, and here we've got, you know, the Gallagher family making great contribution, the Perrys and others. Um, but those things are the catalyst for many people to make small donations to make things happen um so people say well that's that's very complex so so what what are you doing with that so each uh, every three years we give out a million dollars to one or two groups so we're not in the business of giving small amounts of money we give big grants to one or two groups that are going to make a big difference and so so far um we've supported uh zeal hamilton and they've reduced uh, youth, youth yep. crime uh yeah if you look at the youth crime statistics in the cbd they've dropped off because zeal have been operating in that space over the last three years so that's been a pretty good success yeah um the punu river care which has been based out in Tiawamudu, they were a small um marae based nursery working with three people planting say ten thousand trees a year the the their plan was to plant the whole of the um, Punyu River system, which is their awa, their, in their rohi. They now, through our investment, employ 20 people from the marae, planting over half a million trees. They've got contracts now worth $2 million to do tree planting and pest eradication and plants. And and now they've got a social enterprise business happening out of um, Te Awamuru. So that, you know, that's a pretty cool thing to get involved in. So and how, change. How, how do you decide? Which where, ones? Yeah, which yep. ones, yeah. So we run a, a request for proposal system. So it's quite a full-on um, system where we're really looking for uh, business sustainability, good governance, management practices, and something that's going to create change either within a community, so like Te Awamudu or Hamilton CBD, or create change in an issue. So the one other project um, which we're really proud of, which is actually um, now picked up as government policy, is the support for um lunches in school. So at Tukarua, we support kapaikai lunches. And the idea behind providing lunches at schools is, yes, it keeps kids who don't have food at home, but what it does, it actually lifts their educational attainment because those kids aren't hungry in the afternoons, and we can see the study shows that behaviour is better, educational attainment is better, because they're not hungry. Yeah, yeah. But rather than just providing the lunches, we're also doing things like actually working with families around budgeting and advice and food security and education. So we're trying to get to the root cause. So not just do the, um, you know, if you just feed the lunches, you're not really putting out the fire, right? You're only. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. You want to give them the means to be able to do Ab- things themselves. Absolutely. So yep. the lunches um, deals with a specific issue, but then behind that, you need to deal with the root cause. And that's what. Momentum is actually all about that transformational project sort of idea. The concept that um, if you have an endowment fund and you can rather than just support the ongoing filling of the gaps but actually stop the gaps happening in the first place, then that's what we should be trying to do. So that in theory and in practice actually, that's that's what we're trying to do. 
big endowment fund, 300 million in the next 30 years. We're currently at 15 million. Uh, we've just um, agreed some signing of a trust that'll get us to um, about 28 million. Um, and we've also uh, signed some agreements with the Houchins in terms of some assets and land, which will enable us to do different activities and services. So we're about 30 million. So once that grows over time and as bequests come through and those funds start coming through from people, um, and there are other trusts talking to us now who want to transfer to us. And I'll explain that in a minute. But once we get to that point of, say, 30 years' time, we've got $300 million, then the Waikato should be in a position to actually stop those gaps occurring in the first place. Mm. It's really, I mean, it's, it's really tough out there, right? Like, the, there was a um, work done by a specialist panel on the social welfare gap. And they identified that there's $630 million worth of gap in social service funding provision each year in New Zealand. Really? Yeah, $630 million. I'd imagine that incre- would increase every year, wouldn't it? I'd imagine so, yeah, yeah right. Because yeah. you know, we all know that it's getting tougher out there for people at the lower end of the spectrum. Yep. And um, you know, those between those who have and have not, it's getting tougher and, yep. and the squeezing up the middle classes. So how do you address that? You, you know, Our view is you can't just keep funding the gap, you've actually got to try and bridge the gap and stop it from happening. Yeah, well, that's the problem. You got to, That's the problem. You've got to, rather than just giving people stuff, you've got to give them the means to be able to get out of that situation. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, and we, you know, that's where we think if you can get a fund together with the right process, we know there are people out there with clever ideas and services that are, if they could be, uh, you know, Punya River Kids, I guess it, right? Three yeah. people doing 10,000 trees. Now they've got environmental outcomes, better water quality, you know, young people involved on their marae, 20 people who are unemployed now working. You know, like that's a real cha- game changer for that small community in that marae. Imagine if you could replicate that now across the whole Waikato River. Yeah. But how do you change them? Because obviously there'd be some people out there that have no interest in actually getting out of their situation. You know, like they've they've they've, they've gone to a point where they've mentally conditioned themselves to yep. just kind of I'm in this situation, and they don't actually have any desire to get out of it. Yeah, look, and I think um, everyone jumps to that end, but there's that's you know that you're talking about the 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 really tough end of the spectrum there, right? Like yeah, the people yeah, who are yeah. at that end. But that's actually the small percentage. And what that social welfare uh, the, the the group the specialist group on, on social welfare performance said is that actually that's a small percentage, even though that's the picture that communities paint of of the whole, it's actually <laughs> yeah. very small. Right. Everyone else between, you know, as you move up the spectrum, who are in, uh, who are getting support from the community or from the government, actually want to move out, and actually that's and it's how do you move them out of that um, uh, area where they can do their own thing? Yeah. And, and so the, you know, the public perception of that, oh well, they're really tough. They don't want to move. Yes, those are. They yeah, there exist, are some, but there but, are others that aren't. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, it's the old eighty twenty rule. You made, you know, if you can. Move twenty percent of those people who are eighty percent of the of the um, demand, and yeah. that's better for the country overall, right? That's you, right. So, it's it's let's get to those people who, you know, it's like nowadays the term is is earning but can't own, you know, like the, the terrible term working poor, people who are earning money but well, actually can't pay week own. to pay week. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we that we shouldn't be in that situation in New Zealand. We should have some other system that enables us to to break out of that. So whether that's different types of home ownership um, models. So 
Yeah, we keep talking about the New Zealand dream of owning a home. I think that's kind of died, to yeah. be perfectly honest. Yeah, it should be about having a tenure of a house. Yeah. So yeah. rather than, you know, if you don't own a home, you're exposed to the vagrancies of the rental market, right? That's right. So you don't have security. But if you did, if you we had something that was in between that in terms of long-term lease arrangements, community lands trust, um, or, or affordable homes, which are rent-to-own systems, right, which are now coming through after the failure of Kiwi Build and other programs, yeah, those that what that does is gives families tenure, security of tenure of a home. Mm. So rather than being open to the vagrancies of the rental market, they know they've got a payment, they've got ten year long term lease, they know what that payment system is, they can build a future around that, right? So we know that the rental market means you get transitionary families, they move around, they have to move schools. They lose their job. You know, well, all of that stuff happens. Well, part of the problem is housing just keeps getting more and more expensive, and obviously the landlords put the money, the price back on the renters. Absolutely. So then the rental, the, the the price of rent actually goes up as well. Absolutely. So it, it seems a very very difficult thing to try and manage. And this is this is the case. I mean, so when I was at Hamilton City Council, was the regional growth manager. Um, sorry, general manager for city growth. You know, the advice we gave to council was you actually need to bring in a specific intervention to provide affordable housing. So more supply of land doesn't do it because councils can't afford to open up more land with infrastructure. because It's very expensive. It's expensive, right? You've got pipes and roads and all those things. Yeah. And councils are limited to how much they can spend by their revenues. So you need every part of the system to pull the levers they've got at their hands. So explain that, right? So, so banks, right at the start, they need new systems for higher risks on people or um, different lease arrangements for financing options. Mm. Um, councils need to say, well, if we're going to do affordable housing, we need to um, not charge development contributions on those properties. We need to work with developers who are prepared to take a lower than market return. So most developers want to get 12 to 20% on their returns, but actually groups like Momentum will do it for 3 or 4%, right? Right. Um, you need to have um, councils say, well, we might give that affordable housing area rates-free for the next four, four years to allow people to build a uh, – and put that into their house to build up an, an asset base. You need um, material providers to say, look, we're going to do the affordable housing rates at a lower level of return. So rather than taking their margin, they'll take a lower margin. You need builders who are going to do it. You, know, you need – everyone to pull a lever to get affordable housing. But then I think some people say affordable housing is between the 500 to 600 range, and I'm not even sure if that's what you call affordable housing. Well, that's in the current market. That's what I mean. If yeah. It's not, right? No. Let's be honest. It's not. So um, that's what I mean. That, that's because no one's pulling any one lever. You need all of those different groups, so banks, finances, governments, local government, builders, material providers, to pull all the levers they can to make it affordable. And then if one party does not want to do it, that's right. then it all falls through. Yeah, because their whole argument is, oh, if you provide more land, then developers will build more houses and that'll bring the price down because it's this whole demand, supply and demand argument. The problem is, in housing in New Zealand, because we don't have capital gains tax and because like all of us, we invest in another house as our retirement savings and yeah, blah, 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 yeah. it's... A, it's, it's it's an accretive um, asset, so it gains value. Mm. So the demand and supply thing only works when you don't gain value, right? So economy, it's, it, economics <laughs> 101, but it's, yeah, yeah. Like when bananas go up in price when 
they've had a storm in Queensland and there's no more bananas, right? Yeah. Because yeah. of scarcity. But actually with housing, with scarcity, it drives prices up. Yeah, that's right. But if you supply more housing, the market will still pick it up because there's still a rental market, right? Yeah. There's still people, who, there's still a demand. So you, to get ahead of the curve, ahead of the wave of demand, you've got to build so many. And of course, we haven't got enough builders and we haven't got enough material supply and... Well, this is, this is what I find interesting because a lot tough, of people right? seem to have – I see people on Facebook all the time commenting on how to fix the housing problem. And yep. I, it's like I don't think most people know actually the complexity of it. No, that's uh, absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, so it's difficult. It is difficult. And, 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 and actually the model is you've got a – there is no one model, right? So the council, Hamilton City Council, have actually put forward a concept of a community lands trust, which is really cool. It's a good idea. Yeah, uh, and it probably needs Andrew, Andrew mentioned that to me, yeah. Yep. And I think that the concept's right. It just needs probably a bit more grunt, right? Like at the moment, they've put $2 million towards it, but it probably needs about $10 million. And, and the reason for that is that that needs to go out and work with uh, and to buy land and hold that land. And, and then the idea is that you subdivide that land, provide so many houses, and then you and I could come along and we pay to build our house on the land. Their land. And then the idea is, is that rather than so the only capital you have to outlay is the cost of the house, not the house, the cost of the, not land, the land, right? Because oh, okay. it's the land that's the bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you pay a lease to the landholder. How much? How much would that be though? Would it depend on the size of the land? Depends I guess. on the size of the land. It depends on what they've bought it for. Now, yeah. ideally, what you get is um, a situation where land is donated. So if the land is free, then any lease arrangement can be done cheaper. And then you're only building a house. So if you can build a small footprint house, say two rooms, you know, two bedroom home for say three hundred and fifty thousand, which is doable. Yeah, that's affordable. Yeah, but you but you have to pay an annual lease. So you pay rates plus an annual lease. So it means that your annual outgoings are slightly higher, but you've got tenure over that place. And then when you want to move on and you want to sell you sell back to the lands trust who buy the capital off you. Right. But I'd imagine, because I've, I've been overseas quite a bit, yep. and I find that every other country I've been to tends to build up as opposed to out. Absolutely. But we, for some reason, we like to build out here. Yeah, I think that's changing, no way. Like, um, I agree with you. That has been the model. I mean, Auckland's... Auckland's a classic, a right? classic example. Yeah. And Tauranga is the same. And, yet, yeah. and the problem with both those places is that, uh, unlike Hamilton... The constraints that Auckland and Tauranga have got with the harbours, harbours and the yeah, they're geographically challenged. Well, Auckland in particular because it sits on an isthmus. So. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, you know, Hamilton absolutely is actually this. I think it's the second or third smallest local authority by footprint. Yeah, I think there's Cobodo and one other group, <laughs> one other um, council. But but you're right. I mean, how do we protect productive land? And as more and more people have lived overseas, like you and I, and uh, many many of us have, and we've lived in apartments and we've lived in, that idea is not so unappealing. And in fact, if the more apartment living you can get, and um, that's where it's more affordable, um, that's the opportunity. But you got to try and sell that to people because I think there's this cultural conditioning in New Zealand where Kiwis just think, well, I need this big plot of land, I need a house. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, you know, I, I lived in Jakarta for a while, and when I was in the mining game, and lived on the twenty sixth floor, <laughs> and um, uh, with the family, and and we've gone back to a lifestyle block just out at Matangi. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's because that's what we, you know, after living in that space. But 
I, I'm not sure that that's such a hard sell anymore. I think that what you're starting to see, and um, the Deneen brothers have just developed um, the the uh, apartments on Tristram Street opposite yeah, the I've founders, seen that. Yep, yep. and and there's another one going up. So, and there's already some inner city living occurring. That's happening more and more. Um, well, I know I know um, the current council is trying to cut red tape to allow. Uh, to stop height restrictions yep. in terms of how high you can build. Yep. <clears throat> but I, did, I understand that with Hamilton in particular, because of the fertile land, it's quite hard to build a strong fa- foundation the, the, the taller you get. Oh. I think it gets more expensive up to six levels. Yeah, look, it does. That's part of it, but that's not all of the area. right? Like, so um, let's not get sucked into the, <laughs> just to the, what the politicians will tell you. Like, well, this is why I've got you on. Yeah, so... so um, Consent. When, so let's talk about consent, right? So yeah. height restrictions, right? What all that means is when they say you now need to get a resource consent, means that you can build up to six levels without consent. Yeah, you know, you, you're allowed to do it. If you want to go above six levels to say seven, eight, or nine, yeah. All that happens is is there. It's not means you can't do it. What it means is you have to look at some mitigate. You have to see whether going three floors more has an impact. On your neighbours and on the environment, so things like lighting, shading, and noise come in. Oh. So if you get an assessment done that says there's no impact on your neighbours, or, or actually our neighbours have signed off and said that's fine, or there is no impact on lighting, shading, and noise, and all those other and other aspects. But usually there is when you build. Tall. Yeah, but but you can mitigate that, right? Yeah. And and there and there is always some impact when even when the neighbour next door to you builds a new garage, there's some impact. Yeah. It's yeah. just how big is that impact? Right. And if that impact is determined to be less than minor, then you can do it. All it means is that the consent is like a is like a line. You get to that line and now you've got to have a, a higher level of evidence to do the next bit you want to do. Right. So in terms of regulation, it's not a you can't do it. It's there's more cost involved. And I think that's where Andrew So does most of the cost come from the neighbours and the consent process as opposed to the actual cost of building the thing. No, not necessarily from the neighbours. It comes from you now having to have a higher level of evidence to show the impact. So you've now got to do more work. So you've got to get an acoustic assessment done and you've got to get a light shading assessment done and you've got to have a consultation with your neighbours. and you've got So all those other things you have to do to prove mm. that there's no impact just adds to the cost and the time. So when you're developing any commercial thing, Cost and time is obviously a big part of that. So yeah. that's the sort of stuff I think where Andrew um, King, in terms of his idea of the red tape review, is absolutely right. Can you make that, not saying we shouldn't have it, but can you make it more efficient? Can you make it clearer? Can you make it easier? Can you, yeah, and those things are absolutely right. And, you know, um, I mean, I just I put a post up yesterday on LinkedIn and Facebook that talked about actually local government's really misunderstood. You know, you pay this, about the same for electricity as you do for your rates, but look at what you get for your rates as opposed to. Just an electricity bill, yeah. But we knock it right. Oh, it's inefficient and it's terrible and it's already useless and they don't care. That hasn't been my experience. Um, could it be more efficient? Absolutely. Like, there's no doubt about that. But let's not kid ourselves that every commercial organisation in the world is the most efficient one. You know, I used to work for the second biggest gold miner, and I can tell you um, that was just as inefficient and bureaucratic around decision making in, in as terms a council. Of, in terms of what though? Well just time frames and the amount of where you spend your capital and when you spend your time and who, what approvals you have to get from your different management and executive to get a project done. So would you question everything when you were there? 
at council? Oh no! At, at the when you were doing the mine at the mining corporation that you're at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, were you like, why are we doing this? Yeah, we yeah. wanted right. Yeah. Uh, that was. The, and did they actually have an answer, or were they just like, well, this is just what we've done? For? Well, no, that's right. I mean, uh, I think there was what was really interesting is that the the first answer um, was, you know, this is just how we do it, right? Because we've got to have stage gate process. So yeah, you know, and and look that, that traditions. That, yeah, well, and it's a, cult, a corporate cut because um, the the difference with commercial and corporate organisations is that if they want to change, they can change fast, right? And they can take a higher level of risk. And I actually think that's the beauty of New Zealand small businesses is that they don't have big processes, right? It's one or two people who are the bosses or a group of people as an executive who decide we're going to do this. We're happy with the level of risk in our due diligence, and we're just going to go with it. Yeah, that's the efficiency piece, right? Mm. Whereas local government doesn't have that because you're dealing with public funds and you're exposed to a lot more criticism, you're exposed to a lot more critique. Um, and rightly so, it is public funds. So you do have to have a level of, of um, due diligence and um, uh, to ensure that what you are doing is appropriate and that the spend is right and that when you have finished it, because what you don't want is another Bella Vista, right? <laughs> like in Kodonga, you don't want that. No. So, But sometimes that means that you become a bit risk averse and you don't take the risk that you might do as a commercial operator right because councils can't walk away no right so um if something goes wrong in a development the developers already developed the houses they've moved on they've onto sold the, the next, houses right? yeah under the next one ne- they move on to the next one yeah the 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 um liability sits with the council with the rate payer so everyone forgets that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, developers done the property, oh cool, we've signed it off, and then suddenly something happens we didn't know about, or that we thought was there and we thought, oh no, it'd be fine. That's why it's inefficient. It's because it has to take those steps. Now, does it need to take as long? Does it need to be as, you know, bureaucratic or in it? No, it could be faster, better, quicker. But there is that level of um exposure and liability that sits with a local body that it wouldn't do Elsewhere, man, we're covering heaps of stuff, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We are still got (laughs) a while to go, too. Yeah, but this is why housing is, you know, to bring it right back to housing, this is why housing is is expensive. Every time you have another Christchurch earthquake or another fire uh, in a house where people, you know, where where injury to people and deaths occur, um, leaky buildings, all of those issues mean that there's another set of regulations put into the Building Act or into the compliance codes, which ratchets up the responsibility of local governments to ensure that yeah. things are safer, you know, more waterproof, which is the right thing to do. But what people forget is that, you know, swimming pools, so, you know, rightly so, now you've got to have fencing. So now you've got to have fencing, you've got to have inspections. And then every time something happens like that, and all of those rules are actually established in central government. So dog control is a central government law thing carried out by local government. Right. The Building Act is a central government building act regulated at local government level. Yeah, I think I remember Angela saying to me that every time they changed uh, the policy in terms of earthquake-proof buildings, yeah. it changes the whole process, not for just, say, Wellington, where an earthquake occurred, but for the whole the whole country. country. Yeah. Yeah, so every time, you know, leaky buildings, someone drowns in a swimming pool, um, you know, fire... You know, um, and even internationally now, like so, anything big happens internationally, they'll look at it here and how does that affect. So when people say New Zealand's really heavily regulated, it is. 
Um, but I would say that it's, it's less about the regulation and about this, the scale of the agencies we have on a country of five million people, right? Yeah. But anyway, that's why housing becomes really expensive because you've got to have a higher standard of um, materials and regulation and all of that. And all of this, that's only one factor, right? Hmm. You've still got financing to talk about and you've still <laughs> got building and you've still got compliance costs and blah, blah, blah. So because you were city growth manager at the, the city council, is that how you learned all this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it wasn't. Uh, and it was... It was a really interesting thing because I went in there coming from a corporate back, and I'd always worked alongside local government in my mining career and before yeah, that in yeah. sport um, and worked along central governments and local governments with land access deals and all those sorts of things. Did you find it easier though and say, because you worked in Indonesia and Asia? Oh yeah, that was tough, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah compared to, well, what's the story. difference between say, uh, you know, red tape and consents and the whole process there versus here? Oh, so yeah, so Indonesia, yeah. So, so just a little segue, so Indonesia is has for years had been a dictatorship, right? So under Suharto, and was a very centralised system, and it was pretty much do what you like. And, and of course, there's um, not the same overview of human rights and health and safety no. and environmental concern and, and that. And it, and it was a an, a, a um, developing nation that's now rapidly coming into being a developed nation. Yeah. Um, because of the growth of the middle classes within within Asia. So mm. you're seeing that in China and India. They used to call it the BRIC countries, right? Brazil, Russia, India, China, um, Argentina. Yeah. So nations have really rapidly increased. But, you know, there's not the infrastructure in the ground. There's not, you know, when it rains in Jakarta, the place stops because the stormwater just floods the city out into the harbour. Yeah, yeah. You know, people have built, you know, built shanties on the side. You know, so it just, it, it doesn't work. And you know, it takes you. <laughs> I tell the old story that when first I went to Jakarta, it took me four and a half hours to fly there, and I done you know uh, from Perth, but it took me the same amount of time to drive twenty eight k's to get to my airport from the airport to the, the apartment. What was that for? Just because of traffic? Or? Yeah, traffic and monsoon rain, and that was it. So that's crazy. Yeah, and that's what it's like when it stops. Right? When it rains, the city stops. Um, but in terms of regulation, it's just it's nowhere near. But what's happened now, um, in recent in the last decade, is that it's now it's a democracy, and mm. now you've got this really decentralised system where you've got you know central government, you've got state governments, you've got local councils, you've got small village um, mayors, and and all these different levels of regulation and taxing. But <laughs> there's no support or resourcing for it, so it's just a nightmare. Like we had a team of something like. 30 people who would just oversee the number of permits and um, different regulations we required on this massive Excel database every day to see whether we needed to provide a report or put an update or provide some inputs to it. So you don't want to get to that end. Did it get easier, though, as the years went by while you were there? Oh, no. No? It got harder? It got harder. Really? How come? Yeah, well, so Indonesia, um, like many of those countries who had been colonised, um, have, have now gone through this uh, renaissance in terms of um, national pride, right? Yeah. So um, Newmont was an American company, um, and they're saying, "Well, hang on, you're taking our resources, um, nationalism. Those resources would be better off if it was run by an Indonesian company, and we can do our own smelting of the copper, and we can um, uh, um, melt down our own gold, and we can run it ourselves. And why are we giving it to an American company who takes it offshore and does other things with it? Right? Even though the ability to capitalise something like a mine that size, which was you know it's massive. Um, wasn't within the ability of the Indonesian government. 
So they couldn't capitalise it, so you need the American money to come in and capitalise it. But rightfully, they're saying, well, hang on, could we now buy the mine and buy you out and have an Indonesian person run it and all the rest yeah, of it? Yeah. So that nationalism made things harder and harder. So, we, for example, they, they instituted um, six monthly export permits. So every six months, you had to apply for a permit to export the copper and gold to the world markets. Well, you, this is a $2.1 billion mining operation <laughs> with 7,000 people. Yeah. And every six months, you've got to say, well, if we don't get the export permit, we can't export the product and we can't sell it. So we've got to shut the mine down. That's crazy. Every six months, right? Yeah. And it takes about three months to prepare the materials they want for the. So, yeah. So it that just, must have been so frustrating. Yeah, yeah, it was tough, right? It was a tough gig. It's um, um, so you talk about regulation in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, uh, but regulation in New Zealand is less about the regulation. It's actually quite sensible regulation. Is there a lot of it? Yes, but you know, I would argue in a country of five million people, still got seventeen DHBs and still got, you know. Yeah, well, I think it's easy to just get caught up in looking at the negatives, but you're not looking at everything from a global scale. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So, and I'm not suggesting, I'm not actually a big fan of amalgamation of, of different aspects. I think, um, you know, local communities and particularly in regional New Zealand uh, is, is our greatest opportunity. I think, you know, regional New Zealand, after being away for 10 years, you know, was really struggling. Um, coming back, you know, places like Te Aumuru, Cambridge. Um, they're doing pretty well. They're doing well, man. They're bustling and they weren't, you know, Tikiwiri is slowly coming back, you know, places like that. And People are wanting to live in those places now, and they're beautiful places. They're clean places, and they're really productive places. And do you, you think? Do you think public transport though can enhance a lot of those little regional towns? Oh, look, absolutely. And I think that look, my view of the Waikato and particularly of of Hamilton is when we get our head around that it's not Hamilton, it's Hamilton, Narawahia, Huntley, um, Morrinsville, Te Aumuru, Cambridge, you know that circle of people who can drive in and out of Hamilton within a 40-minute drive time, yeah. when that is the view of what <clears throat> um, our community is, because that's how far we drive for work, school, education, yeah. you know, entertainment, well, shopping, 40 minutes is you do that to get out of the motorway. Well, when I lived in Auckland, you know, yeah. I'd take an hour and a half just to get to work, yeah. and that's in West Auckland, driving to the CBD, so yeah. it's just like stupid. So, so exactly. So when so in terms of a question around public transport, you imagine if we had great public transport links to all of those places on a regular basis that allowed people to come in and out of Hamilton all the time. Yeah, well the good thing about the upper North Island at least is everything's in close proximity. Absolutely. That's as as biggest... opposed to say like Sydney or Melbourne or parts of Australia where everything seems to be isolated. Perth, man. Yeah, Perth is in the middle. There's <laughs> nothing close to it. Yeah. But it's a beautiful place to live. Yeah. But um so so that's when we when we get our head around that that's our opportunity, and then absolutely, then with a ninety minute drive time of Hamilton, you're in Auckland, Taupo, Rotorua, Coromandel, Waihi Beach, Raglan. Yeah, you know, that's when you get your head around that, and you go, oh, actually, that's it. I remember when I first moved here, I was like, man, the greatest thing about living in Hamilton is that we're close to everything. Yeah, that's its greatest asset. Yeah, but everyone, oh, you can't say that. It was like, no, but that. That's, but that's actually good. what's good. Yeah. And from a housing perspective, in terms of a housing affordability, if we, if we took that view, actually, and we had good public transport, well, maybe affordable housing is in Morrinsville and is in Te Aumuru, and you offset the travel costs for a good public transport. 
Well, that's why I'm hoping this train that launches next year does well. Yeah. And, and, because and, it could be the start of something. Yeah. And there was a really good question asked at one of the mural debates around, um, what would you do if you had a, a billion dollars gifted to the city? And what oh, would you do yeah. With it, right? yeah. And I think the answer, one of the, I can't remember, um, but light rail between all of those places, I mean, it would gobble up a billion dollars pretty quick, but light yeah. rail or underground, you know, probably light rail, um, would be a winner. Because suddenly your housing stock's not just stuck in Hamilton where you've got to rely on a bus or... Well, that's part of the problem Auckland has, right? Is you've got... If you want to work in Auckland, you have to live in Auckland. Yeah, that's that's, right. And that's the problem. Like, Auckland really needs to become like London. Yeah, and have have really good transport. Yeah, yeah, because then people could work um, work in Auckland and live in Hamilton and vice versa, you know? Absolutely. I mean... You just give people more options. Yeah. And, 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 And yes, there might be a down... You know, if the downtime is the is the um if the, the the downside is the commuter time yeah well well then that's something that can be improved on it that's time. right if you get good public transport that commuter time is actually better than if you've got to drive your own car at a cost right like it's yeah all those other things so um i, I think most people understand that concept but it's probably it's got to be um and i think what we're starting to see with the Auckland to Hamilton corridor work that's being led by government and the metro work and about the connection, the mayoral plan, that thinking is starting to uh, permeate uh, what's happening here in the Waikato. But that that is absolutely... Um, yeah, so everything we've kind of talked about, affordability, that becomes more affordable because you've got more options for affordability and work. You've got the ability to go up, build higher in the CBD and within other parts of the city. And it doesn't just have to be the CBD, right? Like in the future, Rotatuna will be its own, or Tarapa will yeah. be its own, just like North Harbour is its own part of Auckland or Manurewa is its own part of Auckland mm. or Watakere is its own part of Auckland. You'll have pockets of of high um, uh, high density living. And when we're talking high density in New Zealand, we're not talking... 20 you know, stories. stories. We're talking six or seven. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, we're talk- and, and maybe even smaller, we're talking three or four. Yeah. But it's that opportunity to have... Uh, maybe half a dozen of those three or four story buildings and if you look at Mount Monganui and I don't think Mount Monganui has been done well but that concept means that you've now got a pretty thriving community that's busy all the time and, but you know that's the that, again might not have been done well but it's it proves a point yeah yeah, yeah. that's interesting though so do you do you talk to the council on a regular basis like does Momentum Waikato <laughs> work with the council yeah, in terms yeah. Of, in all, terms all of the councils. Like partnerships and, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And do you make suggestions to them as well? Like like you talk to the mayor and be like, hey, you guys should probably do this. Mind you, he probably get, the mayor probably gets that all the time from other people. But Well, I think they all do. Hey? Like, all, I mean, the politician's job's a tough one. Like, um, you know, I, <laughs> I had a lot of run-ins with a lot of um, councillors about different aspects, but but there was more um, collective working together with staff to get the right outcomes. And, and I take my hat off to anyone who stands for local government. Man. So like, you wouldn't want to do it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, certainly not in the next two years. Um, you know, I'm only 47, give me a chance. Um, but I take my hat off to them, right? It's a tough gig. It's, yeah. it's a big, I mean, everyone has a crack. It's a national pastime to have a kick at a councillor, right? Yeah. And, and they are making massive decisions on huge amounts of technical information, you know that that you know when you see those agendas that they get, and, all, and so there's got to be more efficiency around how we do that to support them make better decisions. But do some of those councillors come to you personally and be like, "Can I get your thoughts on this policy?" Or anything? yeah, some do. Yeah, some do. Some do. Yeah. Some some are active in that space. Um, and I, I wouldn't. You, know, you I don't would, need to give me any yeah, names. No, 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 no. No. And some do. And and I think. Um, 
more and more so. The the beauty of the momentum model is we're apolitical, so we're not a lot. You know, council not aligned with anyone. No, they don't fund us. We 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 um, are, are funded, as I said, through you know, bequests and donations, and, and Well Energy Trust initiated us with a ten million dollar um, loan, so that enabled us to get up and get running, right? So we can go and and the beauty of the model, and we'll probably get onto the theatre later on. Yeah, but, yeah. But the beauty of that model means we can progress deals and get things happening free of the politics of the individuals or the of the or, or of the public. Even you know, we can make things happen because we can work with uh, individual philanthropists or excess cash and money uh, or opportunity that councils can't. Mm. So yeah, we're always in communication with. Um, um, different councillors, just as we are with central government on different policy and other partners, like you know, working with the Wises Group around opportunities for well-being villages, or working with Tainui, uh, Waikato Tainui on opportunity for um, social enterprise around land reuse and formation. Um, so we talk to a lot of people, and I think that's one of our. Um, we talk about connect and convene. That's one of our skill sets, right? We're able to um, connect people who may not know each other and bring a partnership together and really create a change. So, um, and we do that all the time. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm no expert. It's just kind of... Hey, well, you know a lot more than I do. (laughs) (laughs) So to me, you are an expert. (laughs) I think think one of the things that um, in my career, whether it was in the sport world when I first started out of university at Lincoln or whether it was, um, you know, mining... And in mining, you know, even though I was, I was chief of staff in Jakarta, I was actually before that I was head of external affairs. So I was working across local governments, governments, state governments, indigenous groups, you know, Tangata Whenua, community agencies, uh, commercial parts of the business to try and get responsible activity in mining. And I'm a real big supporter of responsible business practice and corporate social responsibility. I think the corporate sector in New Zealand has a huge role to play in that. Yeah, both in terms of innovation and technology, but also just in how they, just their business practices, how you deal with the community and how you actually talk to people and engage with them. And yeah. you know, local government's got some way to move in that space as well. Um, but you know that that ability, it's, it's, I don't think it's a technical skill. There's a lot of people who have a huge amount of technical knowledge in all of these spaces. But I have always been able to pick the parts across and put it into one narrative and I always talk about narrative I think when you get the right narrative in place and you can identify the right levers you don't need to know the t- you can just say look if you could do this part and work out how to do that and you could do this part and you could do that and someone else can do this and you can be the orchestra to pull all that stuff together that's where you get the change right and I think that's what we need uh, in leadership um, you know great leaders don't need to know everything they need to understand how it all comes together and then work with the right people oh that's why you have a team things. right they can't that's know right. everything yeah yeah, yeah, fully. yeah so how did the Waikato Regional Theatre come about yeah good question so um, I was actually at council when um, uh, the Founders Theatre was closed in 2016 mm-hmm. you know, so it was yep. um, the fly system um, was deemed to be unsafe and then there was some other structural review work done to replace the fly system you then have to actually structurally review and strengthen other parts of the building and the estimates back then, and it may not be the same now, but the estimates back then was they thought it would be about $30 million to upgrade the fly system, get the structural connectivity done, and get the, to get the building back to being a safe building. And again, as a result of earthquake regulations and all those other things. So there's, Can Hamilton even have an earthquake though? I don't believe there's any fault lines near here. Um, I think there is some fault lines. I mean, 
Well, maybe not the extent of like Wellington. But. No. Well, although in saying that, they thought that about Christchurch, right? They thought Christchurch was pretty safe, and then yeah, and boom. a fault line just had popped up out of nowhere. Yeah. Well, it had been there. But it had been they there. They right? weren't aware of it. Yep. Yeah. So I would. I, yeah. Point. And um, I guess yeah. yeah. I remember when the Christchurch earthquake happened in the Wellington one. I, I felt it at home. Our swimming pool was all over the place. Oh yeah, well, yeah. I did. I did feel one. Yeah, I was in my room and the light moving, and I'm like, "Am I dizzy?" I like, yeah, 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 pretty freaky. Yeah. I lived in Palmerston North. Well, I grew up in Palmerston North, and so we used to get heaps of earthquakes. So I knew exactly what it was. Oh right. Yeah, because Palmerston North on the fault lane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we was going to. So anyway, I feel like Billy Connolly coming back around on. Um, so. The theatre was closed, Founders was closed, and the council uh, rightly went to the community and said, look, if we're going to spend $30 million, what would you want us to do? Do you want us to um, uh, renovate Founders or build new? Uh, Initially, people come back and said, oh, renovate Founders. And then they said, well, what about if we capped our... Oh, sorry, and people come back and said, but but if you could cap your contribution... At twenty-five to thirty million, so you didn't spend as a council, and you could. So find, this is the community that yeah, said this, and you could build new. That would be a good deal, right? And it was then that momentum stepped forward and said, "Well, look, we think we can take a leadership position on this, and if you can commit to that twenty-five million, so saving the ratepayer money's already, we'll find the other money to build a new theatre, and work through a process." Well, that's interesting because. There seems to be, I mean, maybe it's a vocal minority, but there's some people that are just so anti this regional theatre. They're just like, no, upgrade that founders. Yep. So I'm wondering if they, people just didn't even know about the public feedback in regards to the founders theatre. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I no, I, th- I think you, you'd always... Um, well, there's always people that are against anything. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think equally um, you'll find that if they said we're going to do founders, you'll have people who would say, well, that's crazy. Why aren't you building new? Yeah, yeah. So there's always going to be opposing that's views. Right, that's I think right. what we've got to do is sit down with those people with opposing views and, and, and understand what what it is that they're opposing. So a lot of people talk to me about um, I don't like, uh, or they might say, I don't like the new theatre because there's not enough parking. And I say, well, where was the parking at founders? Oh, I was on the side streets. Well, okay, how far did you walk? Oh, about three to 400 metres. Well, isn't that the same for founders? <laughs> isn't it the same for the new theatre? Yeah. We've got drop-off zones, we've got all that. And they go, oh, okay. No, I hadn't thought of it like that. Oh, but the traffic's going to be terrible. You should provide parking underneath. Well, do you really want 300 cars coming out on the Victoria Street after a performance? Oh no, that would be bad. Right. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, yeah. And and you know, how do you when you go to the Sydney Opera House or when you've been to a theatre in London or even Auckland? You're not parking on the street where <laughs> the theatre or whatever the attraction no, that's is. Right. Yeah. So so often people's um and, and we saw this in mining too, right? Um, people's opposition to a project is normally around one or two specific issues. Yeah. Not the entirety of the project. And when you put the entirety of the project in front of them and you talk about the benefits, and, and you know, parking and um, traffic is an issue. We, we accept that it's an issue, but it's an issue that we believe can be mitigated given the timing and how we can operate that. Well, isn't People like get it, right? the Union Square development that's happening, <coughs> whenever that is, yep. I think there's they're going to build a four-storey car park or something. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So, so that, that are, mitigates that issue. Yeah, there's plans there. Um, and we know there's as many car parks within that. And... and Absolutely. So people say, "Well, hang on, I'm, I'm, um, I'm infirmed, or I'm a little bit elderly, or I, uh, I have trouble walking three to four hundred meters." 
cool, okay, well, how can we help you get to the theatre and be accessible? Can we provide a drop-off space for you? Uh, is there other ways we can get you to the theatre? I mean, it's really interesting to me that when the cricket's held at Seddon Park, you know, <laughs> one day there were 30,000 people. Well, eight, even with the, um, the Sevens. The Sevens. Yep. Um, you know, the, the only car park at the, at the rugby is at the school, and yet everyone, and it's the same distance to walk, right? And yet people don't complain about that. No. It's interesting. But I think it's less about um, pointing out other, it's more about working with the individuals to find solutions but to their issues. But that's issues, extremely right? difficult, right? You can't go to every single individual and sit down with them and be like, hey, have you thought about this or this? No, or look, and, if, and, and we people make you know, Facebook posts and go for it, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but but do pe- you get frustrated though? Like if you see a po- post on Facebook and they're posting about the, like oh, yeah. the regional theatre and they're, and they're posting something and you're like... Oh, oh yeah, so I mean people... Because I, I read it sometimes and I, I'm, I'm not even involved with it and I get annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, yeah, you do, but it's... But there is many people who um, who have reached out and asked, you know, we've presented to heaps of groups and people have asked those questions in those groups. And the thing is, the people who post on Facebook aren't going to reach out and, and seek it. They've got an opinion. That's what it well, is, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah the great thing about opinions, you don't have to take them. But yeah, if well, you that's can, right. Yeah, but, but if you can sit down with people, and again, we don't have to agree. We, but what most people that we have presented to, who still may not like it, they will accept, generally, reasonable people will go, I accept there's more benefits than negatives, right? There's more benefits to the CBD transformation, the opportunity to open up the city to the river, uh, the integration of multicultural design with Tainui and and, um, yeah. and Thorpe, uh, the opportunity to really transform the CBD, to have a higher standard of, of theatre than we've got at Founders, you know, better seats, better acoustics, better sight lines, bigger staging, all of those good things are a benefit. So people go, well, there's more benefits than negatives, but I just, I think this negative... Is it still well, it might be because they have an emotional attachment to absolutely, and some people do. Right? Yeah. Like um, absolutely, it's um, uh, the other. I mean, the classical there at the moment is the rhododendron lawn at the Hamilton yeah. Gardens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kicked off, right? Yeah, yeah. And yet, everyone's you know, and again, they've got one perspective, and yet it's like, well, if you look at all of the considerations in the plan. Um, well, I don't think a lot of people have even looked at the plan because no. I've gone into arguments on Facebook over this. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then I look back on it and I'm like, why did I even do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's one thing you know, in an argument on Facebook. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, so, so how, what's what's happening with the theatre? Like, how yeah. far along is it? So cool. So, so um, what we can uh, tell you is is of um, recent times. So, in July, uh, we had oh, this year we've secured another four million dollars out of the of um, from the lottery's grants, which gets our confirmed funding up to uh, fifty four million, and we've applied to the um, provincial growth fund for $15 million, which is a $12 million grant and a $3 million loan. And in July, we got conditional approval from the Provincial Growth Fund that we had met all of the conditions, or had met, sorry, all of the application requirements to now have a negotiation. So that's a really long process. I wrote this application this time last year. So so why does it take so long? Well, it's oversubscribed for one. It's a a big... um, Big beast. There's a lot do, of applications. Do you have to reach out to them every month and chase them up? And oh like, yeah, oh yeah. I'm sure they're sick of me, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the that's the gig. So in July we got that letter, which is, and we've been working 
working with the, with the officials up until that time. It had then gone to an independent expert panel who'd come back with some questions and we'd answer those. So it's, a, it's an ongoing, it's an iterative process, right? You keep providing more information and more information and clarity as you go. Yeah. So in July, we got the letter that said, you got conditional approval. Now we start negotiating on the conditions for that. So that's what we've been doing up till now. Okay, um, and, and then what's the process after that? Then it just starts being built, or is there another? No, process? no. So, no. <laughs> so we, what we wait. So we, we've been uh, informed that um, you know we've met the conditions of negotiation, and they'll come back to us um, with what their decision is in the next few weeks. So when are you hoping that this will start being built? Yeah. So let's say uh, we get um, the money from the provincial growth let's just I mean given, we've, exactly. given yeah. we've gone all this way we're pretty confident we're going to get there we're just waiting on formal notification yeah so let's let's play that game and assume we've got it that will take us to 66 million of the 74 that we need okay right? so that means we're 8 million short could um, you start building it though before you get the rest of the yeah we'd, we'd like we've always said we'd like to be within 5 million of the target before we start building because we can we know as momentum we can carry that risk and we yep. also know We've got some applications with the Regional Cultural and Heritage Fund and some other funds that are lined up for next year, which will we'll go through that process to fill that five million, right? So we know we can take that risk, and it's pretty low risk. But we just, but we would like to be within five million at the moment, within eight million. Uh, you know, if we can ensure that within five million, we'd say go. Yeah. Now we're in resource consent hearings coming up uh, next week. Okay. So we, if we assume, and that all looks. That's taken a long time to get to that point because it's a yeah. pretty complex um, site and pretty complex um, building, as you can imagine, with an international standard theatre. Yeah, we've met with a whole lot of submitters, both positive and negative. We've met with all those. Yeah, you know, there's only 28 submissions, which is pretty good, and about they're about half and half, half opposed, half supportive. Um, you know, we've done ewe consultation. We've done so we've done all that work, which has been. You know, long process. So assuming we get uh, resource consent uh, as we expect late November, early December. Yeah. And assuming there's no appeals to that. Uh, assuming we get the PGF and we can be within five million of that, we should be able to hit the ground and start construction maybe February of next year. And that'll take what two years? A year? Yes, yeah, eighteen months build time, and then a couple of months for getting your systems and training your staff and those things. So looking like an April twenty twenty two opening at this stage. It's quite a while away. It is. It's a long process. I mean, when you think about it, um, you know, Founders was closed in 2016. We didn't really put our hand up until probably, I think it was July of 2016. And then we didn't, you know, and then we didn't get the go-ahead until later that year. And then we finally kicked into it. And I think, you know, we appointed someone in 2017. So we're now two years into a design you know we had to go through a process of appointing a consulting design team we had to find the right site uh, we had to you know find the funds we, so so were you <coughs> hands-on with the actual design of the theater or was that more the council or was it like a no no a, um, a, an effort between the so momentum established a governance panel of experts to appoint charcoal blue so charcoal blue were a, we went out to tender and charcoal blue were a lead um Design theatre design company out of London and Melbourne. Yeah. So they've been, they've worked with the New Zealand Royal Ballet and the Hamilton Operatic and the, um, you know, all the user groups, um, the New Zealand Symphony and blah blah blah. Yeah. Both local and international. They said for us to come and 
at the sta- standard, the standard we need is needs to be this big with this sort of acoustic standard and this sort of sight lines and these sorts of seats and blah blah blah. The group came back and said, "Okay, well, how do we now build something that we think we can afford to meet all of those requirements?" And Charcoal Blue did all that design work. And initially, they came back with a concept plan that was hundreds of millions. We're like, "No, nah, can't do that. Yeah, can't afford it. That's crazy." So then you go back and, and you we tell them what to take out and yeah, well, how and how can you still meet that? Meet those? Can you meet those standards with something less grand? Can you do something? And and you and it's a process of working that through. And so what we believe at seventy four million that we have now is a sta- is an international standard theatre of thirteen hundred seats, which will meet all the requirements of all the user groups in terms of space and acoustics and all those things. And a hotel on top of it. Yeah, well, the hotels and that's been run by a private group, so. Um, the th- no public money goes to the hotel. The hotel's in. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So the hotel is is run by the. So the the land that was then when we identified the site, it was put up by the Plore family who are, who have donated the site to the theatre. They have to retain the historic hotel, and they they're doing their own private development. But oh. by doing it in conjunction, that's what's made it viable. Because otherwise, the theatre would have to carry all the costs of resource consenting and. Or the oh, design work on its own, but by doing it together, you can share those costs, and that's what makes it viable. That, that's the sort of thing that councils can do that through CCOs and establish different um, mechanisms to drive that. So Hamilton used to have a thing called Hamilton Properties Limited that used to work on behalf of council doing commercial property developments. They don't do that anymore. Don't do that anymore. Really? Yep. Why not? Um, it, it, uh, under Judy Hardacre, they were trying to bring it back to do exactly that. And then under Mayor King, they decided they didn't want to do that as a council. Um, Did they say why? I think um, there is a, a fundamental belief in this current council that um, you know commercial uh, deals should be standalone on their own commercial and they shouldn't have any public support, or any public ratepayer support. Um, and you know whether that's right, wrong, or otherwise is for the politicians to make. But that that's been the, the overriding theory under under Mayor King and his council. And I, you know, that's, that's not right or wrong. It's just a view. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't reenact that. Oh, okay. So would it be? It so it wouldn't be back. too difficult to reenact that. No, it wouldn't. It be probably too depends difficult. on who's who's depends mayor. on who's the mayor and on what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think personally, I think it's um, something we should be doing because. That's why you should run for me. <laughs> no. Um, so, personally, I think it's a good thing simply because the beauty of Hamilton Properties is that it can do developments at a higher risk level and at a reduced return. So, it was criticised because it didn't make the returns that commercial provide. So, what I'm saying there is uh, Hamilton Properties are set up and the intent is to do a commercial development but it might, for example, it developed the BNZ building and it developed the hotel yep. with Tainui, right? Yep. But the idea wasn't for us to make a commercial return, or Hamilton Properties wasn't there to make a huge commercial return for the city. It was to initiate the need for a hotel and a new business centre on the river. And we were prepared, or Hamilton Properties was prepared to take a lesser return, even though it made pretty good returns, than it would be for a developer to do it on their own. No. You know, a developer won't take that risk on their own. So by accepting a lower return and acting as a financier, those sorts of things, the real outcome you're after is initiating that transformation in the city or providing that opportunity. Because well, I, th- I think the CBD has a lot of potential. 
Yeah, your map's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, um, I really agree with the, the last two councils' view of facing the river, right? I mean, yeah. you go to Gothenburg, you see Victoria on the river, how good that's been, and, and the opportunity to do that is, is... Well, even like Brisbane and Melbourne. Yeah. You look how that's they right. use their rivers, so... Look, East Perth was the same, right? Yeah. When I moved uh, to Perth, East Perth used to be the warehouse capital, and now it's a, this massive, uh, well, not massive, it's a, just a really cool design townhouse settlement yeah. on the banks of the river with little cafes and... It's and the you know river pathway and we've got all that we've got the river pathways it's all there. there it's all there just yeah. everything turns away yeah yeah so you know I, there's different ways to nail this and, and again all of these ideas you don't know, talk about people complaining they'll have critics people will criticise that concept they'll they'll think that you know that there's no role in local government to support commercial activity so these are, are values based decisions that people have and, and that's okay you just, as long as in your decision you're transparent about why you're doing it and what the outcomes you're thinking and how you drive it forward and so that's, how do that's you, what you can do right? how do you get the word out about Momentum Waikato and everything that we've just talked about um, I mean we've done a massive social media push uh, in the last like couple of years I only found out about you guys because of what happened with the Waikato Regional Theatre yeah yeah well, and that's the thing people that's been a great thing for people to identify momentum, Waikato. Yeah. It hasn't necessarily been a great thing to have people understand that the theatre is just a project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all this other th stuff we do is actually the work. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the grant of the endowment fund and the granting and working with social enterprise and building endowment funds with people and, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and trying to um, shape a better Waikato for everyone. You know, our vision is a better Waikato for everyone forever. Mm. That's That's our core business. But simply because of the networks we have and the skills we have and the people we've got on board and our ability to operate independently of, of councils and access other funds and do it, even though it's a, you know two years and we're only just getting to the point where we can say the, push the button and it's ready to go, we don't think councils would have got there any faster, right? Yeah. So are there any other projects you have in the works that... Oh, there's a that, well, can you talk about it? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, we've identified um, this opportunity to work with a, a group that's looking at... Um, uh, transformation of farming practices up the upper, upper Waipa. So, turn, oh, yeah. so over a, a three-year period, taking from intensive dairy to organic dairy, which has a significant impact on the water quality of the upper Waipa in terms of reduction of sediment, nitrogen, phosphates, um, and E. coli. Because you can, um, and what we're what we're looking at there though, is how do you ride. While you're going to organic, you've got to de-herd, you reduce your size of your herds. How do you keep the cash flow of the business going while you do that? So mm. that's a sort of a real change philosophy in farming practices up there. And, and we need to do that with about, we need to buy about 10 farms over time to do it. But the, the payback is way better water quality. But it's also a higher milk, you know, once you get through the three year period, you start getting a higher milk return for organic milk on the international market. Oh, wow. So, you know, that's a cultural change. And I think um, all of our sectors are going through a reset. You know, every business uh, opportunity in New Zealand is going to go through a reset. And I think we've really pushed in the last two decades a, a volume-based approach, right? More milk, more cows, more tourists, you know, more, more, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When in fact... You go back to my um, earliest comment about the opportunity in New Zealand as regional New Zealand. If we took a value-based approach, so organic milks, and, and I know in New Zealand we go oh, organics and bloody greenies, and look, I was a bit the same. But actually, the market in Europe for organic products 
You know, look at manuka honey. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, I mean, here's the funny When I was living in Jakarta at my supermarket, all of the New Zealand honey products were locked away in a cabinet and you had, like you literally had to go and get a key and someone would come. It's like getting bluff oysters out of the... Was <laughs> that because what? People would steal them? Yeah. Because it was so expensive and so valued and so sought after. Wow. Kiwi fruit were like $4 a kiwi fruit, right? But anything New Zealand... So New Zealand has got that reputation of having a high value quality... Well, yeah. We just don't get it here because well, we're, we're not exposed born to with it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it, right? like you only know what you know. So yeah. I wasn't until I, I went to, um, I think when I went to India um, and I tried the milk there, like it just doesn't taste as well, good. Well, the butter's orange in America. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So like you, you go to different places and you can taste, you definitely tell the, 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 tell the taste difference um, with the quality of our food here. Yeah, it's yeah. cool, right? Like, yeah. But you just don't, it's not something that really computes with the yeah. with the average Joe or the average yeah. Kiwi. And it's like, you know, one of the great things about New Zealand was that you used to go on wilderness tracks and you'd be on your own. Yeah. Now you go and do the Tongariro crossing oh, and you're in a line. Right? Yeah. So that's a volume-based approach. How many more people can we get on that track? How many more? And look, years ago, I did parks and recreation management, which is probably ironic that I ended up in mining. Yeah. out of Lincoln and I remember back then they were talking about the use versus abuse matrix which is basically saying in tourism if you have too many people you then start to abusing the very thing people are coming to see that's right right and then you've got to put in more tracks and then you've got to put in more maintenance and you're operating so how do you get value out of things and and you know, and again, we in New Zealand because we live it and we kind of wake up with it, and it's like. Yeah. But when you've been overseas and you see, you know, people just want to come and there, there's a business in Taipei. So my wife's um, her her iwi's from she's from Taipei, Mokai Patia. There's a business in Taipei that charges people a premium to just come and stay on the farm for a week, and all they do is they <laughs> like they, they they've got a pretty they've built a pretty flash. Um, um, sleep out barn thing yeah it's pretty cool but apart from that all they do is like they feed out hay to cows they go into the milking shed and they milk cows and actually get to touch a cow and put a set of cups oh, wow. on a cow they get to um, feed out on the back of a truck yeah you know ride on the back of a ute they get to, you know touch a sheep they get to shear a sheep they get to see a sheep being cut up and just the stuff that you and I take for granted as Kiwis and I think even actually there's a whole lot of Kiwis in New Zealand now who have never seen and done that. No, well, they're probably grown up in urban environments. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, but people pay a premium for that, right? They, and they, they can walk through green grass and they can walk down to a river and they can swim in a river and they're going, and they're paying, that's, that's in Taipei, that happens right now. And, um, you know, there are people who, um, there are small businesses doing really good things and making great money, bringing international people and taking them for walks through the Coromandel. You know, paying, people paying a premium to be at one with nature and to be, to actually walk onto a marae and to be welcomed on, you know, things that are authentic to New Zealand. And, and the most authentic part of New Zealand is regional New Zealand. It's Te Awamudu and it's Te Kawiri and it's Taumiranui yeah. and Taihepi. And because well, I, I lived in Auckland, like I grew up there. And I think since I've moved out, I've actually visited more places within New Zealand yeah. since leaving Auckland. Yeah, it's great, right? Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. a cool place. New Zealand's fantastic. Yeah. I think I think people uh, don't realise that Auckland is very different from, say, the rest of New Zealand. 
it's like it's 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 just its own thing i think and i think that's probably why there's the whole auckland versus new zealand debate sometimes but it's like waikato waikato is one of the most authentic places you can get to yeah because from here you can oh there's so many great places in close proximity that's great so yeah that whole authentic so this whole value proposition you know what is authentic um because people realize that you know they live in cities around the world and and they're seeking for something that is different than getting on the train and all those things and yeah new zealand offers that but if all we're going to do is have more cows and more cars and more trucks we're just that's we're not making the most now we've got to go through some we're going transition to lose some of that yeah and we've got to go through a reset and it's going to be tough and we're going to have to do some hard decisions about that and i and i'm i'm not one to not knock farming or or the heritage aspects of where our communities come from i think you know i think Mahatma Gandhi talked about this about you know you can't pe- people who just didn't know you can't blame them for things that they did that they weren't aware of you know en- environmental impact being one of those the farming practices of new zealand were worked they were because they were the best in at the time yeah the impact of that's only been known in recent years so therefore we have to change but we shouldn't be bashing them over the head with that we need to you know, it's not an urbanites versus farming community thing. It's actually a New Zealand thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's actually how do we reset New Zealand? Because we're still going to be the best place in the world to grow milk, grow cows, do it cheaply. Right? So issues around methane and nitrogen, well, let's find solutions to those things, but still not lose that opportunity. And yes, there's a moving away to, um, you know, away from meat and, and those products, and that'll happen over time. But it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater because actually that Kiwi number eight wire attitude and the, you know, being pretty irreverent to that's what makes us Kiwis. That's actually yeah. pretty cool. You know, our connection with Māori and the treaty and how we do that. You know, I talk about this all the time. It, I I identify being through New Zealand by by saying kia ora to people and giving the old eye lift, chin lift when I'm yeah. overseas to people. <laughs> I mean, my, and, yeah, funny story. So my wife and I we were in um, Dublin. We we're on top of the Guinness. Um, factory we've done it great oh, tour yeah. yep. so you get to the top of the factory right, and it's that big glass dome and there's a bar at the top of the factory and we're across the side of the bar and we look over and there's a guy wearing a greenstone and he's got a tarmuko on his arm and he looks over and just gives us the old head nod and the eye lift oh, yeah. and we did the same yeah. and we just knew we were from New Zealand um, and I think that and, and as I said you know, that authentic we can't lose that you know, moving into, but how do we leverage that to be something that's really authentic? Um, because you know, I like, I like nothing better than going to Taipei and sitting in the pub with the locals and <laughs> having a beer. You know, and, uh, but I'm equally as happy as talking to the prime minister about the provincial growth fund, and and that's what Kiwis are. We're adaptable. You know, we can't we can't just become. You know, oh, no. we're like a village in some senses. Yeah, yeah the total yeah. population. So yeah. let's not lose that. Eh? Right, yeah, let's, yeah, let's grasp hold of it. Cool. Well, hey, I know you got to get going, but um, this has been great. I wish I could talk to you for longer, actually. <laughs> it's been awesome. No, it's a pretty hard case. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. well, please please come on again at some point. I'm yeah, sure, sure. We can, there's heaps of different stuff we could talk about. Yeah, well, look, when the theatre gets up, uh, we're pretty confident we'll get there. We'll have to come back and talk more about that. Yeah, and, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, uh, yeah. Cool. So if anyone wants to check out Momentum Waikato and what they do, there's a website? Absolutely. Um, so um, MomentumWaikato.com. Um, org.nz uh, or if you just Google it it'll pop up yep. um, and we're on Facebook and on Instagram and all those good things but you know, one of our um, overriding ethos is that, that we're in the people game right 
yeah, everything at the moment is about, about people. So, you know, if people want us to present to them, come and talk to them, meet with me individually, meet with one of the team. You know, we've got a small team. There's 3.6 of us, you know, FTEs. <laughs> um, so four of us in the office, but part time, two of them are part-timers. So we're a pretty small team, um, but we get a lot done through through our networks and our governance groups and our other people. And, um, you know, happy to talk. Great. Awesome, man. Thanks right. for your time. No worries. All Cheers. right, that's the show, guys. Until next time, stay safe. See ya.